I'm Carly Fiorina, and this is By Example. On this podcast, we sit down with leaders of all types to explore examples of real leadership and the qualities of all great problem solvers. I think we get really confused about what leadership is. On By Example, we lift up the real leaders, people who are focused on changing the order of things for the better and solving real problems that are right in front of them. Leading by example. Adam Grant is a different kind of guest for by example. I've never had a professor on before, and Adam Grant is a professor of organizational psychology, which is a fancy way of saying that he studies people in organizations and how organizations respond because of the way people respond. You may have heard of Adam Grant because he's authored books like Originals. Uh, He's host of his own podcast called Work Life. I was interested in talking to Adam because we come at the subject of leadership from different places. I from experience, Adam from academia and clinical observation. As you'll hear, however, While we start from different places, we arrive at the same place over and over and over again. And I honestly think we were both a bit surprised by how simpatico we were. So have a listen. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Adam Grant. Well, Adam, I am really um, delighted to have you on the podcast today. And actually, you're the first professor that I've had on. Maybe the last. I've had a... (laughs) (laughs) I doubt it. But, um, you know, when I first got my um, MBA, I didn't know what organizational psychology was. But it turned out to be my absolute favorite class and my favorite professor because somehow it was that class that got me focused on the reality that business is all about people. It's all about people. And in fact, when I wrote my first book, uh, I which was about my time in business, I made the observation that, you know, we think about business as products and profits and results, but people produce all those things. And so if you want to be successful in business, you better understand people and how to make them more effective, either as individuals or as teams. For those people who don't know what organizational psychology is and who don't know what you do as a professor, we'll get to you as a TED Talker and a best-selling author in a moment, explain to our listeners a little bit about organizational psychology and why it's important. Sure. Well, I I, I think I'm preaching to the choir here because you just captured why I think it's so important. But, you know, in some ways, my job is to study other people's jobs and try to figure out how to fix them. So I spend a lot of my time trying to make work just suck a little bit less uh, in some cases, that means I'll, uh, I'll go into an organization and do observations and interviews and surveys to try to figure out how people can make better decisions, improve the culture, uh, innovate more, make a team more collaborative. Um, but my favorite thing to do, actually, is to go into a company and actually design experiments where we, we try to change something that's broken and then see whether we can improve motivation and meaning, but also productivity and creativity. You know, it's so interesting because while you and I come at this from different lenses and different vantage points, I am a practitioner of business. You are someone who observes and uh, prescribes for business, and obviously you understand it very well. But one of the things that uh, I talk about a lot and have in my business career, in my nonprofit career, and now in my upcoming book, Find Your Way, is that leadership is actually all about problem solving. In this way, it differs from management. Uh, Managers frequently toe the line, stick in their lane, follow the process. It doesn't make them bad people, but it is why problems fester so often in organizations because people can't or won't actually change the order of things for the better and challenge the status quo in order to solve the problems right in front of them. Talk to us a little bit about, in all of your observations, why is it so hard for people to challenge the way things are, champion something new, actually solve a problem? 
Well, I think that I think you're exactly right that leaders are supposed to be problem solvers. And I've I've been stunned by the number of leaders who who take that to mean something that really stands in the way of problem solving. So uh, well, I in think, my book, they're not really leaders. They just have a title that suggests they might be one. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah. Often they're in a position of authority, but they're not leading effectively. And, you know, Carly, one of the things I've, I've noticed over and over again when I go into an organization is I hear so many leaders say, you know, don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. And that drives me crazy because if you create a culture where people can only speak up when they know the solution you're never going to hear about the biggest problems. That's right. They're too hard for any one person to solve or, you know, too complex. And so, you know, I get why leaders say this. I realize you don't want people to be whining and complaining all the time. But I actually think that the beginning of creating a a problem-solving culture is creating a problem-raising culture where it's, you know, it's safe to say, here is something that's broken, even if you have no idea what to do about it. I think that's so true. You know, people ask me, well, how'd you get from secretary to CEO. And the truth is, I didn't have some plan to become a CEO. Uh, What I did was solve problems. And what was so interesting to me from the very bottom of the totem pole is everywhere I looked, I saw problems and everybody knew what the problems were. And everybody talked about the problems, but they frequently talked about them around the water cooler instead of in the boss's office. And what I discovered was that not only did everybody talk about the problem, did it not only did everybody know about the problem, but actually the people closest to the problem so often knew what would make it better, but they didn't necessarily believe that it was their job to raise how to make it better or that they get rewarded for ma- raising how to make it better. And so they just didn't. And so often all people needed was an opportunity to collaborate, the courage to take the heat, (laughs) the character to keep going when the going got tough, and the imagination to sort of see the possibilities in a circumstance that actually, even though this problem has festered for a long time, there is a possibility to solve it. Do you observe that in cultures where people see it, they know it, they talk about it, and yet they don't do anything about it? Yeah, all the time. I think... You know, one of the big barriers is, uh, is, is that fear that, you know, you don't want to cut the boss's throat uh, or you don't want to rock the boat. But even worse than that, the data suggests is, is just a sense of futility that, you know, maybe, maybe nothing bad will happen if I speak up about a problem, but I don't think anyone's going to do anything about it. And so why should I bother to try? And it's, it's one of the reasons I love to see leaders uh, go and, and spread examples of, you know, of, of innovations that have succeeded, of problems that have been raised and really listened to, uh, I think, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to do, right? I think in, in many companies, uh, and not just in businesses, in workplaces of all kinds, uh, there are what, uh, what Chip and Dan Heath would call bright spots, where, you know, even if the culture is, is mostly dysfunctional, there's probably a pocket of excellence somewhere. And I think your job as a leader to, is to find it and then kind of publicize it, right? So everyone knows it's going on. And that makes it just so much easier for other people to say, hey, maybe if I speak up, people are really going to take action. I think it's so true that so many people feel helpless or powerless or that it's futile. I think that's true in all kinds of organizations. In some way, I think it's true in our country that people sort of feel like, oh, my gosh, we have these huge problems. There's nothing I can do to make anything better. My work now is around lifting leaders up, finding problem solvers, focusing teams and individuals and organizations on how they can build problem-solving cultures and problem solvers wherever they are and whatever the problems are. And what I always find so encouraging is what happens when people actually get that they can change the order of things for the better or that they do have an opportunity to speak up, it's transforming for people in some ways. When you find those pockets of excellence, Adam, in organizations that you work in, how are the people there different in their outlook, in their um, emotions from people elsewhere? Well, the, the first thing is uh, they are often pretty vocal about the issues they see, but they've added a little humor to it. 
Yeah. So I think the first time I ever saw it was walking into a call center where somebody had posted a sign that said, uh, doing a good job here is like wetting your pants in a dark suit. <laughs> I was like, what? And then it, wow. Yeah. And then it, the, it ended with, uh, you get a warm feeling, but no one else notices. And it was such oh, a clever funny. way to get the attention of management. Uh, and, you know, it, it started a whole conversation about how the work could become a little bit less, you know, less soul crushing. And then uh, there was an Air Force base uh, that I came across a few years later where uh, there was a chef doing national security work uh, at the base, but, you know, basically cooking for the, the security officers. And the chef had posted a sign that said, uh, defending freedom, one pancake at a time. Those are great. Those uh, are great. So, I, you know, I, I look for, in a lot of cases, uh, those people who are, you know, who are willing to say, hey, things around here aren't perfect. Uh, I don't see a line of sight between, you know, my job and the larger mission of the organization. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm willing to point that out and do something about it. And, you know, what's interesting to me about those people is when I've studied them um, and when, even when I've talked to some, you know, some serious innovators, uh, one, one thing I've noticed is everybody feels some doubt at some point. Of and, course. And, you know, it's not, it's not that the people who take action aren't afraid, right? It's that they, they say, look, I'm, yeah, I'm, af- I'm afraid of failing, but I'm even more afraid of failing to try. Well, you know, when we talk to people about problem solving and leadership and um, even if it's in a leadership lab setting or in my upcoming book, the first thing we talk about is courage because the truth is everybody's afraid of something and so many people are afraid of, just as you suggest, I'm afraid of failing, I'm afraid of looking foolish, I'm afraid of getting criticized, I'm afraid of making a mistake. One of the things that I say to organizations all the time is, you know, most organizations, as you know, Adam, always say, we want more innovation. But then, of course, if you want more innovation, you need more risk-taking. And if you want more risk-taking, you have to tolerate more mistake-making. And that's where the rub is, because people get the message that somehow they can't make a mistake. And if the culture says, we don't tolerate mistakes ever, then no one will ever take a risk and you won't get innovation. People are too afraid to try because they're afraid of screwing up. It's a huge problem. And you know, I'm sure you've seen it over and over again throughout your career. The, the study that, that for me captured it the best was, uh, was an Amy Edmondson study in hospitals where uh, she went into hospital teams and they surve- she surveyed them on, on psychological safety. So did they feel like they could take a risk without being punished. You know, if, if they made a mistake, could they tell people? And she was really surprised to find that the teams with more psychological safety actually had higher error rates. Uh, they were, you know, they were more likely to make medical mistakes. And, you know, it seemed like maybe if you create too much safety to take risks, then, you know, people stop holding each other accountable. They stop de- double checking each other's work. Uh, maybe they themselves are less careful. But Amy wasn't convinced. And she went to the, the data and she realized well, errors are being measured by the team's own reports. And so we don't really know how many mistakes they're making. We just know how many they're willing to admit. And she got a a covert observer to go into the units and and record the actual error rates. And the the results flipped. So the the teams with a lot of psychological safety, uh, they actually reported more errors, but they made fewer. uh, Because when when they disclosed an error, everybody else could learn from it and say, okay, we're not gonna make the same mistake. Whereas you know, when, when teams lack that psychological safety, people spend a huge amount of time hiding their mistakes, and then they got repeated over and over again. It, it's so true. And one of the things that I, I think we use the word failure far too often. It's such a heavy word. <laughs> mistakes is a little bit lighter word. But one of the things I'm sure you do as well is to say to people, look, If you're going to try something new, if you're going to take a risk, if you're going to innovate, if you're going to solve problems, if you're going to change the order of things for the better, you are going to make mistakes. The goal is not to make the same mistake twice. The goal is to make sure the mistake isn't fatal. But accept that mistakes are part of it. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that's that's something that I would love to see more leaders do. And I think the, the challenge is actually making it real. So I, if I can turn the tables on you, I'm really curious, if you think back to your, your HP days, for example, 
Um, one of the, I think one of the biggest challenges that, that any leader would face in a situation like that is, okay, you know, you've, you've done some layoffs, you've asked people to take pay cuts. And I know that in a lot of the organizations I've worked with, that creates a culture of fear where people say, okay, I'm going to be next. And so I've got to really focus narrowly on just doing my job as opposed to, you know, to innovating or, or thinking creatively. How did you overcome that fear? Well, it's interesting. Uh, so first I would say that I made mistake-making explicitly part of our conversation right from the beginning. So HP, when I arrived, you know, it had stopped growing, basically. Profit was deteriorating. We were losing market share. I mean, it was a company in trouble. And uh, yet, everybody was making more money every year. <laughs> so, the, so the metrics were so skewed. And so we talked about the fact that if we listen to our customers, our customers were telling us, you're not serving our needs, you're too slow, you're too fat, you're too expensive. And I remember someone asking me, well, if we're going to be faster and we're going to be more responsive, aren't we going to make mistakes? And the answer was yes, absolutely, we will. So now when you fast forward through the technology bust and layoffs and pay cuts are painfully necessary, I needed something else to point to. One of the things we started doing was to measure innovation and to reward innovation and to lift up people who were not only innovating, but who were making mistakes in the process. And so literally we would measure how many new ideas are coming forward, how many patents are being produced, how much of our products are being, how much of our revenue is being generated by products that didn't exist a year ago. And we would purposefully lift up people who were doing something new and we would make an example, not just of their success, but of their mistakes, because I think it's the only way you can create a safe environment for people is to hold up people who have taken advantage of that safe environment mm -hmm. and reported a mistake or taken a risk. You're not going to succeed every time. People need to see it to believe it, in other words, and you need to measure it if people are going to pay attention to it. That's interesting because the other the other thing that I've I've seen leaders do that we have at least some some evidence for is you know when when leaders sort of run into a wall and say okay you know I, I just can't get people to believe it in some cases I've seen them go out on the limb and and just start disclosing their own mistakes and I know it's it's often risky to to be that vulnerable but I'm curious about how you think about that is there a right time for for leaders to oh I think absolutely and say I screwed up yes of course there is you know one of the important elements of leadership, I think, and I know you believe this as well, is humility. I mean, we've talked about courage, the requirement to be brave and move forward. But without humility, actually, you don't get collaboration either. If, if a leader, or let's just say a person with position and title, actually believes they always have the answers, or they don't need anyone else, guess what? They're not going to solve problems because you cannot solve problems alone, ever. And actually, it turns out that you can't achieve anything worthwhile acting on your own. Even if you're the CEO, even if you have the biggest position and title in the world, I alone actually can never fix it. <laughs> and so <laughs> you have to be humble. And humility requires a leader to say, not only I screwed up or I made a mistake, but I can't do it all by myself. And I don't know it all by myself. You know, um, Adam, I want to ask you a question about humility specifically, actually, because you, you may not know this, uh, but you are in my upcoming book. Uh-oh. And you're in my, you're in my upcoming book, um, where I talk about humility. You interviewed Shane Battier um, about humility. And you asked, and actually Shane Battier is going to be a guest uh, on this podcast as well. But you actually asked him a question. How do you make your team better when you're not the biggest star? Which led into a whole conversation about humility. So maybe talk a little bit about humility and as we've 
our conversation has just uh, mentioned, you're not humble if you can't admit a mistake <laughs> or admit you need somebody else. Yeah, I could I could think of a few leaders who could who could use that message right now. Well, I would argue they are leaders in title and position, but they're not actually leading. I I, uh, I happen to agree with you there. So maybe I need to stop calling them leaders. Um, I uh, you know I think I think humility gets a bad rap. I think that when you know when people talk about humility, it often sounds like weakness uh, or, or false a lack of modesty. Confidence. Yeah, false modesty. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that's a mistake. I, I actually, um, I, I went back and, and looked up the origin of the word, and it, it turns out it has a Latin root, which means from the earth. Oh, interesting. Which I thought was, was such a nice way of capturing it. I, th- I think humility is just really about being grounded and saying, look, you know, I'm, I'm not superhuman. Uh, I have weaknesses as well as strengths. I need other people to be successful. Um, and, you know, I, I do make plenty of mistakes. And... I've, uh, so I, I, there are a couple of places where I've, I've seen this play out in really interesting ways. Uh, one, of, of course, is with Shane Battier. So Shane, uh, you know, came, he came up the ranks uh, in basketball as a superstar. He's the player of the year in high school, player of the year in college, won the, the national championship at Duke, uh, drafted sixth in the NBA. And then, you know, lo and behold, it turns out that athletically, he's just not on the same level as most NBA stars. Uh, you know, people complain he's slow. He can't really dribble. <laughs> and so, you know, Shane ends up having to figure out other ways to contribute. And there was that great Michael Lewis article about him 10 years ago now uh, called the No Stats All-Star, uh, which, was, which was all about, you know, this weird thing that, you know, Shane didn't score a ton of points. He didn't get a lot of rebounds. He didn't block a lot of shots. And yet when he was on the court, his team was statistically a lot more likely to win. And that was all about humility, right? Shane, he didn't have this giant ego to say, I, got, I have to be the guy with the ball. I have to be the one who's leading the team in scoring. It was him saying, okay, how can I study all the statistics on Kobe Bryant and figure out where he's, you know, where he's worst on the court from a, a shooting percentage standpoint and then kind of force him over to that spot? Uh, can I dive for all the loose balls? And you know, that, that kind of humility is what makes any kind of team rate, uh, excuse me, that kind of humility is what makes any time kind of team, one more time, um, that kind of humility is what makes any kind of team great. And, you know, you can see it in really visible ways in sports where the egos are often big, but I think we can apply that to any workplace. And there's a movement, I'm, I'm wondering what you think about this, Carly, there's a movement that we should all have failure resumes that, you know, when we write our bios or we create our, our resumes, they, they only highlight our successes. And I've seen some, uh, some professors and some, some managers and, and bosses who have created CVs where they actually list all the jobs they applied for they didn't get, uh, all the mistakes they made in their career. Uh, and I wonder if you think about you know, somebody v- vying for a leadership role, whether that's in the corporate world or in the political world, would, would you ever consider doing something like that? Is it too risky? No, I don't think it's too risky. Again, I happen to not like the word failure because I think it suggests something that actually isn't true. So when we hear the word failure, it tends to connote that it's fatal. Winston Churchill famously said, failure isn't fatal. And that's obviously true if we learn from our failures and our mistakes. But I think the point, whether we call it failure or mistakes or things that didn't turn out the way you thought they would or the going got tough and the going always gets tough, I think what um, you're talking about is a way of someone revealing what are the risks I took, what are the mistakes I made, What are the things that didn't work out the way I planned? Because I actually think that the mistakes, the risks, the times when the going got tough, that reveals who people really are. Um, I've had interesting experiences where I will talk to groups of people, uh, students, let's just say. I've talked to groups of students who have been told their whole lives, you're the cream of the crop, you're it, you're the, you know, you're just it. And I've talked to students who've been told all their lives, you're a mess. I've taught the first group of students has had a lot of privilege and entitlement. The second group of students has had a lot of barriers and hurdles they've had to overcome. 
without exception, the students who have had to overcome barriers, hurdles, who've had to hear not encouraging things, but discouraging things, come to those sessions better prepared, more thoughtful, um, more enlightened, and they use the time more effectively. And so I've concluded that people who've had it, let me just use the term easy, Mm -hmm. people who aren't able or willing to um, actually acknowledge when the going got tough, or perhaps people who've never had tough going, they are less likely over time to be successful. Because if you haven't had to pick yourself up and dust yourself off, if you haven't had to reflect on the mistake you've just made and what you've learned, if you haven't had to say to yourself, you know, that didn't turn out the way I wanted to, but nevertheless, there are things I can do. If you haven't had to go through that, you're not ready to lead. Well, that, that goes to something really interesting, which I, I think is the question of how to build resilience. And yes. you know, I think that, that you know, it's something we all want, right? We all want to figure out how to bounce back and ideally forward from adversity. And I think that, you know, that, that both managers and parents actually really, really get this wrong when I, I feel like so often the, you know, the managers I work with and, you know, also the parents of my students, uh, they, they really try to shield people from failure uh, yes. or from, you know, from any kind of struggle because, you know, they're afraid it's going to break them. And last time I checked, the evidence is, is pretty consistent that it, one of the best ways to learn to deal with, with difficulty is actually to face it and have to overcome it. That's uh, right. There's a, there's a book that I really like uh, by Julie Lithgott-Hames uh, on how to raise an adult. Uh, and Julie was the, was the dean of freshmen at Stanford. And one of the, the pieces of advice she gave to all these helicopter parents out there, which, you know, there's kind of a helicopter manager version of that at work, uh, was, you know, you, you don't want to shield kids from struggle. You want to normalize struggle so that they, they see it as something that's not devastating. It's you know, just an ordinary part of the human experience that we all need to pick ourselves up from, which, uh, which I think is exactly what you're, you're highlighting here. I, I- Absolutely. And, and I, so I think the point is your, your reverse resume idea uh, is, is interesting as long as what people put down is genuine. But I do think a lot, I think our culture tries to, um, particularly those who have the means to protect others, um, there is this sense that somehow we should. We should protect people from... Um, being hurt or failing or making a mistake or being insulted. I mean, for heaven's sakes, my first business meeting with a client was in a strip club. Now, was that a terrible circumstance? Yes, it was. But boy, did I learn a lot from that. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about the people I was working with. Uh, I learned a lot about finding common ground with people I didn't think I had anything in common with. And in this case, I found common ground with the young women who worked at that strip club who empathized with me in this sort of unspoken way. That was such an unexpected gift in that circumstance. And so while when I tell that story, sometimes people will say, yikes, or oh my goodness, or isn't that terrible? Yes, it was a yikes moment. It was terrible. And yet... Having to deal with that, while I don't recommend it, uh, it turned out to be a very important growth experience for me. And so sometimes, while you don't want people to be disrespected or placed uh, in situations that make them uncomfortable, on the other hand, um, facing situations where you really have to dig deep uh, teaches you about yourself. There's no question. Please tell me you at least changed the, meet, the, the location of the second meeting. <laughs> well, it never happened again. to me again. Oh, it okay, never good. happened to me again because, uh, you know, I had a colleague who was trying to put me in my place. He was trying to scare me. And uh, I knew I couldn't be scared and I needed to meet the challenge head on. But, you know, it's interesting talking about humility. I, I also realized after that that I actually needed this guy, that he knew the customers, that he knew the company and I didn't. But the flip side of humility perhaps is empathy. I also figured out that he was afraid of me. 
you know, he was a guy who was um, very close to retirement, and he was afraid of the fact that I was this brand new model with an MBA who he thought was mm. going to undermine all the work that he felt proud of. And so I do think that part of problem solving and collaboration and humility is to try and figure out what are other people afraid of and what are other people's gifts at the same time? What can they bring to the table that might make the situation better? That's so interesting. Do you ever find yourself actually making those observations out loud or is it just oh, something yes, that you, all the you time. keep in your head? Oh, no, no, no. No, I, I do it all the time. Um, I, I do it in this upcoming book. I do it in the leadership lab work that we do with nonprofits and businesses all across the country. Uh, I did it when I was an active CEO. I think people relate to storytelling. And so if you can tell stories and lift people up, either yourself or more importantly, others who other people can relate to, oh, I can relate to this person. I can see myself in this story. I think it's one of the ways you start to change behavior. Um, lift up the person who made a mistake. Lift up the person who overcame a huge barrier. Uh, lift up the person who maybe didn't solve a problem 100%, but got 60% of the way there. And that's real progress. So I guess then I'm curious if you if you were going to rewind and go back to that strip club situation, I, I wonder if you would go so far as to, to, you know, to have that conversation and say, hey, it seems like, you know, you, you might be threatened by me as an MBA. And I want to let you know, I'm not actually here to replace you. Oh, I did have that conversation. Yeah. I mean, what what's so interesting, so after this strip club um, event, <laughs> experience, what should we call it? Significant <laughs> emotional event. Trauma. In my, uh, trauma, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> you have to, I was a philosophy major. I was a law school dropout. I started out as a secretary. So, you know, for me to land in this sales job at AT&T, I mean, I didn't know anything. And um, so... After I get through this trauma and I realize I actually have to collaborate with this guy because he has the relationships with the customers and I need those relationships in order to do my job. So we had this conversation afterwards. I never beat him up about that event, but I also stood my ground and we started to work together and we started to sell product together. We started to have business together. We started to make prob uh, solve problems together. And at some point, we got to be close enough colleagues that I said to him, Carl, what, what was that about? And he, at that point, trusted me. And so he told me what it was about. And it was kind of an aha moment. And one of the greatest compliments I ever got was when he finally retired he came and said, I'm starting my own company. I'd like you to come work for me. And, you know, I was shocked. And he said, I'd be in a foxhole with you any time. The point is, we can team with lots of people. We can team with people that we initially think we hate. We can team with people that we may not agree with on a lot of things. We can team with people who are very different from ourselves. In fact, truthfully, I've found that if you collaborate with people that are different than you, you tend to have more insight and therefore solve problems better than if you just stick with the people that you think are just like you and agree with you all the time. Gosh, we could use more of that understanding in the, in the world of work. Uh, there was um, one of the things that I, I found most interesting when, you know, when I've been trying to teach the value of, of cognitive diversity and you know, background diversity as well uh, in class for years. And one of the, the studies I liked most was a, a Kathy Phillips uh, actually set of studies where the, the basic finding was that one of the reasons people feel like diversity makes things harder is they, they feel more uncomfortable. And so absolutely, you know, you're, you're in a room that is the point. Of, yeah, that, that is the point. Exactly. And <laughs> that's the point. That discomfort led them to prepare more and listen yes. more carefully to one another's ideas. And so I, I love the way that you just double clicked on that and said, yeah, that, that's the point. You're supposed to be uncomfortable. And that's a good thing. Uh, do you ever worry that, that people get too uncomfortable, though, and it stops them from sharing information? Well, I think you have to create, and this is the role of a true leader, you have to create a climate where people can work past that discomfort. And that takes active leadership. 
when I say active leadership, I mean, having built diverse teams over and over and over, I can say from personal experience, yes, it is harder to collaborate with someone who's very different than you are. You have to listen harder. You have to be more thoughtful about how you say things, but boy, the rewards are great. But you also have to pay attention to the fundamentals like who's in the room, who speaks in the room, does everybody speak in the room? Um, how do you make sure that you have ample opportunity to green light and brainstorm as opposed to start to winnow down options and red light and make decisions? All those things take real time and real care. And unfortunately, one of the other aspects of our business culture is we tend to say, oh, meetings are useless. Meetings aren't, well, oh, gosh, <laughs> not another meeting. Oh, you know, and a lot of meetings are useless. But collaboration happens when people meet together. Let me ask you as a psychologist, because you have a scientific background that I don't have, but I have been told by others that when you are uncomfortable, that is actually the only time you're learning something new. That you actually have to be uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> to learn something new or to do something different or to be, to go back to one of your fantastic books, to be original, you have to be discomforted in some way to come up with a new idea or to hear a new idea. What do you think about that? I don't buy it. Uh, in fact, the the thought makes me a little uncomfortable. Aha! Uh -huh. <laughs> maybe maybe, maybe for, for a, a meta reason, though. I think anytime somebody says, you have to be X, in order to accomplish why. Uh, yeah. That's somebody who's just, who has a really limited theory. You of, don't like the formula. No, you don't right. like the formula. Yeah. No, anything that matters. Uh, you know, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to make this really wonky. Uh, I really, um, my worldview was shifted in, uh, in grad school when I learned about systems dynamics thinking, uh, which, you know, I guess a lot of it has been useful in, in the airline industry and, you know, anybody who deals with complex systems. But I think it applies to, to all the important things in life, too. That there's this principle in systems dynamics, which is called equifinality, uh, which is a you know, fancy way of just saying uh, there are multiple paths to the same end. And I think in any complex system, that's true by definition. Uh, yeah. And I think that, you know, that learning uh, or success or any other outcome that we value in life uh, is a hugely complex system. And so, you know, I think when, when I think about the, the specific question, you know, do you have to be uncomfortable to learn? Of course not. I think that discomfort is, is one way to learn, and it's especially a way to, to unlearn. If you have bad habits or routines that, you know, that need to be adjusted. Um, I know when, when, when I was kind of a fake athlete as a springboard diver, <laughs> one of the only ways that I got better uh, was to be uncomfortable. Uh, and, you know, I'd have to, in order to try something new, uh, let's say I'm doing, you know, two and a half somersaults in the air, for example. Um, you know, I'm, I'm told to, to move my arms differently and I get completely lost in the air. Uh, and that's got to happen in order to learn a new technique uh, to improve the dive. Um, and I think there are skills that require discomfort to adjust. But, you know, for me, Carly, so much of learning is, is driven by curiosity and enthusiasm and passion. And, you know, I think about my, my college professor who, you know, who really got me excited about psychology. Uh, I took a personality psychology class with Brian Little. And th the class could not have been more comfortable, right? I was, I was sitting there just at the edge of my seat laughing and, uh, you know, kind of wondering about things that I'd never contemplated before about, you know, why, why am I, uh, despite a lot of people thinking that I'm an extrovert, why am I actually an introvert? Um, and I just, I remember actually getting more and more comfortable with, with the things uh, that I didn't understand about myself and other people. Uh, so, you know, I think, and I think that's been true for so many of us, right? If, if you think about uh, your time studying philosophy, uh, if you think about the, the days when you were training to be a, a classical pianist, uh, I'm guessing some of those moments were uncomfortable, but others were just, surely, they must have been exciting, right? Yes. And, and I, so I, I think it's interesting how you say that because maybe the, the word uncomfortable is wrong. Uncomfortable implies um, painful, labored. Um, I, my own experience is when you gather, back to the subject of diversity for a moment, when you gather a, a group of diverse people around the table who are bound together 
by a common purpose or a worthy goal or a problem that they all really feel strongly about trying to solve. That is, while it takes more effort and more energy to get everybody's best thinking on the table, that is a joyful, exciting, uplifting experience. Yeah. It is. It's joyful. It's exciting. It's uplifting. It's challenging. It's exciting. So I guess when I use the word comfort, what I really mean is I think people tend to slide into habits. Yeah. H- habits of the people they hang around. And actually, I think our culture is so tribal now, we tend to all retreat into our tribe. And of course, when we do that, we, wow, we don't hear anything new. We just hear what we want to hear. <laughs> And we're certainly not solving problems. We're just going over the same old formulas over and over and over. And that happens in teams, too, not just in politics, for example. That that resonates. And it makes me think that instead of uncomfortable, uh, we need to be unfamiliar in order to learn. There there you go. That's a great word. Or challenged or challenged in some way. Yeah. Because challenge can be joyful and exciting, to your point. Um. And productive. What, one of the things that I see over and over again in teams is if you don't have collaboration among people that are different from one another, you don't get the same number of options or paths or ideas on the table. So I fully agree with you. There are many paths, many options to get to an outcome. But you're going to probably do better if you have... I don't know, five or six or eight you're considering as opposed to one or yeah, two. I think, I think that's, that's one of the, I mean, it's one of the most basic truths of life. Uh, you know, more, more options for, for achieving a goal are better. There is a, I guess there's a little wrinkle in that though, which is uh, you've, you've probably seen uh, at some point Barry Schwartz's work on the paradox of choice. And yeah. how, you know, when people have too many options, uh, especially if they're not experts in the domain, they, they often get paralyzed uh, yeah. or, you know, they, they start to feel all this regret that they chose the wrong option. And so I see this a lot with my students who, you know, are, are always worried when they make career choices that, you know, if they if they close one door, it's going to be shut forever. Uh, and so they feel like they need to keep all their options open. And, you know, that that just leaves in a, them in a position where they can't commit to, to any any first path. Um how do you how do you think about striking a balance between you know considering lots of possibilities but actually having enough conviction that one is worth pursuing to give it a try? You know it's interesting. I'll go back to to um, HP just for a moment, although it applies in many things. Um, HP had a culture where you didn't make mistakes, as we've talked about, as so many uh, organizations do. And so what would happen when a decision needed to be made is people would consider every option endlessly. Well, the good news was they considered lots of options. The bad news was decisions never got made. And so one of the things that I think people need to realize is time plays a part in all of this. (laughs) So, you know, a perfect decision made too late is actually worse than an imperfect decision made on time. And so I think what happens is um, people imagine that they have um, endless time to analyze or consider. And, of course, none of us do because we never get time back. Uh, And so what I've found personally, whether it's advice to my kids or grandkids or leading an organization or leading a team, is um, if you can inject the reality of time... The reality of competition sometimes, hey, if you don't take this job, somebody else will. Or if we don't get out into the marketplace with this product, someone else is going to. Once you put time into it, it it tends to focus people's energies a little bit on all these options are great, but actually we got to make a decision. And I also think that great teams, collaborative teams, know 
that there is a time for consideration and blue skying and brainstorming, and there is a time for winnowing the options, and then there is a time for decision making. And once the decision's made, a highly performing team stays together to execute the decision, whether they agreed with it initially or not. Yeah, I've heard that often described as uh, as sort of a a philosophy of, uh, you know, sort of disagree and then commit. I, I do I do worry that in many cases uh, people overcommit though right so um, w- one That's of my true. favorite one of my favorite they, topics, they don't they don't uh, oh, flex as circumstances change yeah um, it often gets called escalation of commitment uh, to a losing yep. course of action where you know you, you put a bunch of time or resources into a, a project or a strategy or a goal and then it doesn't pan out and you feel like well I have to save face and prove to myself and everybody else that this was a good idea all along. What have you learned over your career, Carly, about about how to de-escalate those kinds of commitments? Yeah. Well, it's such an important observation that you're making. And I I started this conversation by telling you about uh, a class I took during my first MBA. And uh, I later got a master's of science and business from MIT. But in that first MBA class, I remember being drummed into our heads. Now, remember, I was a law school dropout and a secretary. So these basic lessons <laughs> really landed with me. But one of these basic lessons early on was sunk cost is sunk cost. Yeah. Because you see so many businesses make decisions based on their sunk costs, not based on the realities of what's going to be the right course going forward. So what I find most helpful, is whether again, whether it's coaching a team or leading an organization, is to have a gate process. And, you know, you, you see this, I know, in a lot of your work around the originals and innovation and, and how you actually manage innovation. That is to say that you make a decision, but you also lay out, when you make the decision, a series of gates, a series of uh, metrics, so that you are checking your progress at each of these gates. And in essence, what those gates are is an opportunity to pause and say, are we still on the right path or not? And you don't commit everything when you start. You commit a little more as you get through each gate. In other words, you set up at the beginning. We're going to have opportunities. We're going to create opportunities. We're going to force opportunities to look at this decision to consider whether it's going the way we thought it would go, to consider whether circumstances have changed or not, and to recommit again or to change course. I like it. I think that's, uh, that's a, an approach that, it, what I like about it is that it strikes the balance. Uh, it, it doesn't lead people to be completely wishy-washy, uh, but it also helps them recognize that there is a time and a place to reevaluate and reconsider. So, Adam, you have been incredibly generous with your time, and I could go on and on and on with you for hours, and maybe we should figure out a way to uh, get together on another occasion. But I'm going to close, if I can, because you have been so generous. I'm going to ask you about the importance of and the difficulty of being an original. Um, The importance of, I think, is obvious. If you're not original, you don't have a new idea. The reason I say the difficulty of is because so much of the culture that, for example, students deal with today is how many likes do you get? Have you perfectly curated your Instagram photo? Does everybody think of you what you want them to think of you? It's, it's And meanwhile, the helicopter parents and let's get protected from difficulty. It seems to me that people are getting so many signals these days that tells them just fit in yeah. as opposed to be original. So yeah. talk to us about why it's so important to be an original. I think I think it's a huge problem, and it starts really early. Uh, there's one study that, <laughs> that I, I was depressed to read, but I think we all need to be aware of, which is uh, if you look at classrooms, the most creative student in the class is the least likely to be the teacher's pet. Uh, uh-huh. They're yes. kind of annoying, right? <laughs> like constantly asking questions and not wanting to follow the lesson plan and teachers, you know, very quickly stamp that out. And of course, we see bosses do the same thing in in all kinds of workplaces. And, you know, I I think that's a missed opportunity for, you know, for for any group that you're part of, because 
you know, the, the people who, who have the courage to be original are the ones who move us forward, right? They drive all the creativity and change and, and progress in the world. And so I think we desperately need that. I also think that, you know, even, even if you don't have an impact, uh, ultimately you are, I think you're left with less regret. Uh, you know, it goes, it goes back to that observation about, you know, am I afraid of of failing or am I afraid of failing to try? And we do see that in the long run, the the biggest regrets most people have um, are not, you know, the chances they took, they're the chances they didn't take. And so, you know, I think if anybody does kind of the mental time travel exercise and fast forwards 10, 20, 30 years and says, what will I regret more? You know, being a conformist or, you know, having my original ideas rejected. Uh, I think it's it's pretty clear that most of us are, are more afraid in the long run of, of not trying. And I guess, you know, I think that that, that to me is, is one of the strongest cases for, for being original, but it, it is worth recognizing it's a bumpier road, right? Yes. You, there, there are two kinds of ideas that get rejected. There are bad ideas and there are ideas that are so original that they're ahead of their time uh, or, you know, they just weren't understood. And I think you take on some risk when, you know, when you, you go down that path, but I think ultimately uh, that's what we need in the world uh, in order to to continue advancing. Well, I certainly agree with that. My phrase for the kind of person you describe as an original is a change warrior. There are people who fight for changing the order of things for the better. They fight to solve problems. They fight for something new. And um, it, it is a bumpier road. And yet those change warriors, and they're everywhere, by the way, that is what a real leader, those are the people a real leader will go seek out, because they know without the originals, without the change warriors, everything's going to stay the same. Yeah. (laughs) Problems at all. Problems at all. Our job at some level is to, to make it a little bit less of a war for those people who are excited to drive change. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. Um, Adam, this has been such a great conversation. I so appreciate it. And uh, I hope that we'll have an opportunity to talk again. Likewise, Carly. It was surprisingly enjoyable. You're not as terrifying as I thought you'd be. Oh, well, you see, preconceived notions haunt everyone. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I'm not terrifying at all. (laughs) Not at all. Not in this conversation, for sure. Thanks, Adam. Have a great day, and thanks for having a challenging and exciting, and I might even say joyful conversation with me. Thank you. It was a delight. That's all for now. But you can always check out more episodes online at carlyfiorina.com or on iTunes. And please subscribe so you can get all of the episodes. You can be the first to get updates and exclusive offers by texting, by example, Two three four five, three four five. You can also send us feedback on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Carly Fiorina, or by email at byexample at carlyfiorina.com. Until next time, I'm Carly Fiorina, and this is By Example.